After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got to go. Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go. We are kicking. Watch the blue. There we go. Yeah, baby. Hey, you got the power play. Get out of here. Hey. 36, right here for the rock. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting. Hey, hey. We're not doing this. I don't want to babysit all night. A little bit of nastiness today. Huh? Nothing good's coming out of this, big man. Have you seen this before? Yes, it's rule something point something. He's not putting a stick in you. You keep your stick out of him. Here we go. Let's roll, boys. Let's go. Hey, 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 hey. Let's go. After further review, it's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Here's your hosts, Todd Lewis and Josh Smith. When you're ready, big guy. All right, guys, let's drop the puck. Keep your head up. That's the rule of thumb, isn't it, Josh? When you're out on the ice, keep your head up? I would say that's a, that's a pretty good rule to live by, sure. I believe that should go for officials, too, because Chris Schlenker got rolled in a game this past week by <laughs> Sam Gagne of the Winnipeg Jets. There was no penalty called, no thankfully, call. for, for Gagne inflicting a physical punishment on an official. But, you know, I can see how running into the referee on shift number one doesn't really set a good tone for the night. I don't know if that's the foot you want to get off on. No, you're you're definitely not getting any credit or any positive vibes there. But uh, Schlenker's a big boy, a former police officer, former canine officer there. I think he can handle himself and he took it well. But yeah, that's that's not the way you want to start a game. I am going to resist that golden opportunity you presented <laughs> to me it. talking about Officer Schlenker canine officer. I'm just going <laughs> to let it go and say that this is, of course, the Scouting of the Rest podcast. We want you to make sure that you're following us on our social channels. You get Josh at Scouting the Refs on Twitter and on Instagram. For me, it's at Todd Lewis Sports on both Twitter and on Instagram. On this week's episode, everything is fine. Tripping fines, slashing fines, running the goalie fines, new officials make debuts, and all that is wrong with offside review. Plus, I think we can probably squeeze in a few other little things too, Josh. There's there's room for everything. It's a party and it's a whole lot of complaining going on. <laughs> Just another week. Okay, congratulations in order, first of all, to two new members of the NHL officials staff made their debuts this past week. First, linesman Ryan Jackson, who is carrying on the family business of course, father Dave Jackson was a referee in the league for many years, and now he's doing great work on ESPN. Congratulations to Ryan. Yeah, great to see him out there. A solid skater. I've noticed him out there with his speed on the ice, so following in his old man's footsteps as well when it comes to mobility. And had a quick chat with Dave and, and learned that, as expected, he was holding his breath the entire first period <laughs> of that debut game. <laughs> Yeah, don't don't blow an offside, don't blow an <laughs> right. icing call or something like that, right? So the the other debut is linesman Joe Mayan, who hit the ice in San Jose this past week. Is that all of the new officials that have been brought up? I, I assume everyone has started the season. Is that correct? We've got everybody active except for referee Morgan McPhee. So he was hired to start the season working predominantly in the AHL. It's a little bit different. With the linesmen, we see more of a 40-40 split. They work half the season in the AHL, half the season in the NHL. So it's common for them to make their debuts early on in the year because of the amount of games they'll be working. Referees, they take their time a bit more. I would expect McPhee will work a game, maybe two games, but we won't see him, or we're not expecting to see him on NHL ice until the spring. So look for that later this season, but that's it. All the linesmen are out there. We've got one NHL referee under contract who's yet to make his debut. So Morgan McPhee, we're, we're watching. You are on the clock, sir. 
Congratulations and welcome to all newcomers. Okay, let's uh, run the debit cards first. Let's uh, run the balance of $2,300 or uh, just a little bit more for Ty Delandreas of the Dallas Stars. He got uh, dinged for accidentally on purpose tripping New York Ranger goaltender Ilya Shesterkin, cruising through the Ranger crease. All of a sudden, the goaltender goes splat on the ice. Two minutes go up on the board. Department of Player Safety felt uh, maybe a little further penalty was in order. Perhaps this was a deterrent to keep away from this type of behavior in the future. But Del Andreas got fined just over $2,300 for this. I think it's worth it. Yeah, I think it was a legit call on the penalty there. Some thought Shesterkin went down a bit easy. I, it's kind of hard to say. As a goaltender, it's easy to have your skate knocked out and take a tumble onto the ice, which is what happened there. But I, I think the league is looking to try to protect netminders. And you don't want guys running through the crease, whether it's, as you so properly put it, the accidentally on purpose of a little skate <laughs> clip here. It, it, it's not a not a good look. So one that I, I agree with the fine for. Certainly nothing more than that, but this is about as hard of a slap on the wrist as you can get. And I think it's the right message. Next up, a member of the Anaheim Ducks, better known for using his stick like a magic wand as opposed to a billy club. It was Trevor Zegris. Find $1,500, again, the maximum amount allowable for a solid whack to San Jose defenseman Matt Benning. Two collided along the board. Zagris took offense, let Benning know of his displeasure, and Zagris earned a minor penalty. And again, I think this was a deterrent fine. Yeah, and I know the dollar amount isn't significant. We're not looking at really hurting uh, his wallet here all that much. It's just the point that player safety is is letting him know that hey this was over the line and we're not giving you a game for it it doesn't justify that but let's let's get you that criminal record started to show that uh, you know you're now officially on the naughty list so not not anything from a monetary standpoint but certainly you you don't want to have to have that on your record the amount is kind of based on the salary of the players and things too that's why it varies the maximum allowable amount for for different players and also on the list this week Casey Sezikis of the New York Islanders in a game versus the Chicago Blackhawks Sezikis was doing his thing, which is stirring up emotions, we'll say. Went to pursue the puck behind the Hawks' net. Goaltender Alex Stalock was outside the blue paint. And how should we say, Sezikis, in car racing terms, did not lift. He continued at full throttle and sent the goaltender tumbling into the net. Got himself a major penalty for interference, got reviewed, got tossed from the game, and also picked up a $5,000 fine. I think because this occurred just three minutes or so into the game, that's why Sezikis avoided a suspension. Other, otherwise, I could see him getting suspended for that hit. I, I think it's right on the line there. I know player safety has often said that their determination of a suspension has no bearing on the time the incident took place in the game. If it's suspendable, they'll suspend him, whether it's in the first minute or the final minute. That's at least what their stance is on it. But there are definitely times when it, it feels that way. I think this one... Again, it's it's close to the line there where you're looking at, is this a suspendable offense or is this a max fine? Sezikis had an opportunity to get out of the way. He he didn't. He steamrolled the goaltender. I, I know he's out of the blue paint. And just because the goaltender is outside the crease does not mean they're fair game, whether pursuing a loose puck or any incidental contact. This was a little bit more than incidental. So I, I know Islanders fans weren't happy. I know most of them take the LIRR to get to UBS Arena. Unfortunately, in this case, Sezikis took the C train right through the <laughs> crease there and, and plowed the goaltender. I, I I think it was the right call. It's a, it's a rough one, but I think they got it right. Yeah. Okay. I, I I could I could see him getting suspended a game, but just 
Just yeah. because, as and this is a phrase I think you'll use later on, he did nothing to avoid contact or minimize the contact in this case. That's exactly right. I think that's that's where you look at, is it a finer suspension? And that's where I think you could have gone with a game just because of that. You know, it was... It was no attempt to get out of the way. It was no attempt to minimize contact. Injury on the play certainly is not a good look either. Okay. There were a few other incidents that I want to get into and discuss. Some of them I think were, well, let's just say harshly penalized. San Jose, Florida matchup. It was the Sharks' Luke Cunnan who got himself a match penalty for a hit on Florida Panthers forward Patrick Hornquist. Hornquist was kind of pursuing a loose puck. He was reaching. He was bent over a little bit. The Sharks defenseman really lowered the boom on him. It was, you could say it was high. It was a really hard hit. It sent him crashing to the ice and he he got up and left the ice. The angles I watched, and there were only a limited number available, this was a shoulder check. It was making contact with Hornquist in the shoulder, attempting to hit him square through the body, to use a phrase that is often mentioned in the Department of Player Safety videos. He got a major penalty. I don't think it was a penalty. As the rule is written, I believe this was a legal hit. It was a a very unfortunate hit where we look at an injury on the play, but you are looking at a situation, Todd, where the, the player put himself in a spot where he was more at risk there by by leaning forward hornquist is is certainly more susceptible to a hit especially a hit up high because he's now put his head in a lower position the only thing i can see from from kunin's standpoint is he didn't minimize contact and uh, you know there still was an opportunity for him to react there and and he didn't but i have a hard time with this as a match penalty where you're looking at an intent to injure Hornquist's movement, his path, his head position contributed significantly to this impact. And, you know, player safety looks at those incidents and says, is head contact avoidable on this play? And and that's where you're looking at, did he have a chance to react? Was there enough time? Uh, did Hornquist contribute to those things? And for the officials, they get a first look at it on the ice. They're calling it real time. And then in this case, since it is a major match penalty, they get a chance for a second look. I think their determination was that you know, the, due to the severity of the hit, they want to penalize it harshly. And I think that that later review by player safety, you're seeing that perhaps they're looking at the contributions Hornquist made on the play and as a result for no further disciplinary action. Yeah, I, I can see that. I don't think there's going to be anything anything further coming from from player safety on this. But the objective of the defenseman is to take the player out, to eliminate him from the play and to eliminate the possibility of him pursuing and reaching the puck and creating a scoring opportunity for the Florida Panthers. And and this is why I have trouble with, uh, I understand, minimize the, the opportunity for injury, but if you've got a player leaning forward who's reaching for a puck and you are on a collision course, I'm not sure what you can do. I mean, other than try and stop, and that puts you in a precarious position. It does. And you, you certainly don't want to put yourself in a spot where you're going to get injured or you're not bracing for impact. And, and perhaps the collision goes even more awry and you end up crashing into the boards or you take him out as well. I, I think Cunning braced for impact. He brought his elbow up or in a little bit. But I, I see that more as a, a defensive move than necessarily delivering a shot. And it's particularly 
towards the opponent's head. So yeah, I, I was I was a little bit surprised by this one. And I think these are the situations that it's good that the officials have the opportunity to review them. Uh, watching the game real time, I thought they were going to downgrade this penalty and they were happy with the call on the ice. Yeah, and that, that one puzzles me, especially when I'll compare it to the next incident. It was a game earlier in the week. This was also a match penalty that was issued to Ottawa Senator player Dylan Gambrell, who had a flying elbow that landed on Tampa defenseman Eric Chernak. Now, this match penalty, I think, was absolutely deserved. Um, again, perhaps a little more could have been done here. I did not hear of a fine announced. There was certainly no suspension. Chernak did return to the game later on, but this was clearly a flying elbow headshot. Yeah, and that's the difference, right? In the previous hit, we're looking at the player being hit, putting himself in a spot where his head was lower and may have contributed to the contact. In this case, I see the player, Gambrell, who's delivering the hit, elevating to deliver that headshot. And to me, that that's a whole different world when it comes to calling the penalty or even supplemental discipline. It looked like he he rose up to deliver that hit, which would be high, and you could see his shoulder and elbow also move up as part of delivering the hit. So these are the types of situations where you've got a dangerous headshot. And to me, there's a lot more on the intent side or or we can read more into possible intent based on how that hit was delivered. So I think this was the right call. I, I wouldn't have been surprised to see a game come out of this one specifically because it looked like a shot that was targeting the head. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, there's another circumstance that arises I think a lot more frequently than we're aware of out on the ice. It isn't always detected by the officials and certainly not by the television cameras. We did catch the one in the game between the Carolina Hurricanes and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Jordan Martinook of the Hurricanes got dinged for slashing when he dinged lightning forward Ross Colton. It appears, shall we say, that he rang the bell, used a <laughs> stick as the two skated by each other and poked him in the undercarriage or in that general vicinity they reviewed this and did decide a two-minute slashing penalty was the appropriate call. Do we need to look at this and talk about this going forward? Because as I say, I think this happens a lot more frequently than people are aware of. It does, and I think it's one of those situations, and we've talked about these in the past, there's no game value here. It's not a slash where you're trying to get the puck away or you're, you're trying to force a player wide and you're slashing his stick and you, you cause a penalty there. This is one where you are intending to poke an opposing player. You're doing nothing but causing injury or antagonizing someone or possibly instigating a fight. So there's no redeeming hockey value of these types of penalties. And to me, that should be an automatic escalation and it should be dealt with a bit more harshly. I thought this was a spear. You're looking at the the tip of the stick, you jab somebody with it, and by NHL rulebook definition, that is spearing. And they deal with it pretty harshly. When we look at how they call this one, if you attempt to spear an opponent, it's a double minor. It's a four-minute penalty. If you make contact, it's five in a game. And if you injure somebody, it's a match penalty. So obviously, the NHL rulebook understands that these are plays we don't want to have happen in the game. These have a great potential for injury. And really, it's it's nonsense. It's shenanigans. It's ridiculous that you're even considering doing this, you know, as professional athletes out there. And this is what we have happening. That's why I'm baffled by the decisions that we see where it either isn't penalized or it's downgraded or called as a slash, which is a different act altogether. So in this case, we had what I thought was a clear cut spear and the officials look at it and they do have the ability to downgrade it and downgrade it to a different penalty now if they want to. And that's what they did and called it a slash. So I, I, I'm going to disagree with this one. I think we need to be harsher on spears. And I think this was a great opportunity that was lost. They called it and then they downgraded it.
I think it was downgraded because it didn't appear to be that severe a strike, if you will. And Ross Colton went down like there was a sniper in the building. So I I see how that (laughs) plays into it. But maybe at least we could call it two minutes for spearing. You can't. You can't. That's not even an option. Your spearing starts at four minute penalty. Maybe we should. This is what I'm I, at least acknowledge the pen. This is what the penalty is. Yeah. I, and embarrass the player. <laughs> and maybe that's it. But if we call it the way it's written and, and again, even just going with that double minor for trying to spear somebody, it's it's a bit harsher. It, 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 there's no way you can accidentally spear somebody. You can you can take a slash and yeah. go for the puck and hit a guy in the hands. This is an intentional act. And and yes, Colton did go down like a like a sack of potatoes there. And, and maybe that's part of it. But Martin Nook opened the door. He committed to the motion. Well, he tried to. <laughs> tried to open the can there. It's got to be harsher. It, it has to be just because of the intent of the play and, and situations like this. So I, I think you don't want to go for the full major in a game for making contact, which is spelled out specifically in the rule book. At least give him the double minor for the spear. Like you said, Todd, call it for what it is, even if it means it's four minutes. All right. Fair enough. Shall we talk about the easy to understand penalty of goaltender interference? <laughs> well, I thought spearing was so clear cut. Well, you never know. Uh, Jets and Habs game. Blake Wheeler of the Jets is in the crease. Does seem to impede Habs goalie Samuel Montembeau, but it also, upon further review, looks like he's being manipulated by the Montreal defenseman. So the goal that is score stands. This one seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, that was my read on it as well. It, it was a situation where Wheeler's getting pushed into the crease and into the goaltender. It's it's the Montreal defender's shove that initiates contact. Once contact is made, it's up to Wheeler to vacate the crease or get out of the way. At that point, though, we're battling for a loose puck. He has a right to battle for that loose puck. So once the defender has put him in that spot, Wheeler's free to try to play the puck. He does. The puck goes in. So I can see the controversy here around the rule, but it comes back to that 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 underlying concept of not pushing players into your own goaltender. And because of that, uh, there was nothing Montreal could do about this one. All right. So different teams, different game. But again, there was perhaps two players battling and trying to manipulate each other that impacted the result. Toronto and Anaheim, Adam Henrique battling with a Leaf defenseman, moves out of the crease while he is engaged with that defenseman. The puck gets by goalie Eric Schalgren, Leafs challenge, and the goal is disallowed. I thought this was, um, the word I'll use is questionable. Yeah, this one, I, I was watching it and, and seeing that we're, we're looking at a situation where we've got Henrik shoving Kampf into the goaltender. He's, he's pushing the defender in who, I'll go back to last week and say this defender and Henrik both have a significant position in the crease. And because of that, uh, the goaltender's not able to play his position and the puck deflects into the net. So I think had the contact not been there by Henrik, had he not been holding the defender in the blue paint and in the way, this goal doesn't get scored. Because of that, I, I thought for sure this was going to get overturned. That was a situation where the defending player impeded his own goaltender through the actions of an attacking player. And I I, I was pretty confident this was going to get waved off. So uh, holy cow, uh, you never know. Uh, yes, you never know. Okay, there was one more that, again, we'd like to talk about. You can't see it because apparently NHL.com is no longer posting the video of these <laughs> rulings on their website, which is frustrating. But this one happened in the, the, the Boston and Pittsburgh game. Patrice Bergeron is moving across the front of the Penn's crease, and Tristan Jari is attempting to make the save. The puck gets shoveled toward the net. It goes in off the netminder's leg, but 
hold on, review time. The Pens challenge, Bergeron is ruled to have interfered with the goaltender. And again, he's sort of engaged with the defenseman, but I don't think that's the key. It's his left leg that makes contact with Jari, kind of spins him a little bit. And I think that's the key element here. Yeah, that's enough to pull the goaltender out of position. And that's what they're looking at on this review. To me, this was probably the easiest of the three that we're talking about here because you have a situation, whatever the contact is, you're now looking at Bergeron skate, clipping Jari, and Jari's unable to be in the right position to make the save, doesn't have an opportunity to reset. So you've got to wave that goal off. I was thinking at some point, we should probably talk about offside video review. And Josh, you know the stats a lot better than I do, but it seems to me nearly every offside review that has been initiated this year has been upheld. If a team challenges, they know they're right and they're not going to risk maybe getting a penalty. Am I right in leaning that way? You are. It's been amazing the uh, the success rate that teams have had and it, whether it's better coaching, whether it's more awareness, whether it's the video coaches, confidence, communication to the bench. They've done a great job. It's been amazing to see that the coaches' challenges have come down overall as the league has made changes over the years, but they've the teams have been more and more successful at them, particularly offside. But there are some that still spur people to get upset about offside video review challenge. And we can always count on our friend Sean McIndoe at The Athletic to provide us with reasons why things are going horribly wrong in officiating. Just as just as we get the offside review nearly perfect, he wants to scrap it. In a new piece that just came out, well, he at least wants to limit how long it takes. So he always has irreverent, fun, witty commentary. I encourage you to read the piece. It's very good. And he also has a few sound arguments. I don't know if you want to go through a, a few of the suggestions that he has and talk about them, but I, I think there's some pretty good ideas here that are worth talking about. And the first one has to do with the rule itself and the phrase conclusive and irrefutable evidence, meaning you got to see it and you got to see it pretty clearly very quickly. Yeah, I think that one, <laughs> you, you you eased into the end of there. You've got to see it pretty quickly. I think the quickly part we struggle with and the clearly part is even a challenge because there are plenty of offside calls that we can get, I would say, right away and say, oh yeah, that's that's clearly offside. And then there are the ones that require a frame-by-frame -frame review that we're going back over. And that's where the, the evidence isn't necessarily as irrefutable as you would hope, where you're looking at, at grainy pixels, even in high-resolution cameras that the league has, but you're rolling them frame-by-frame -frame and trying to determine the position of a skate, and now a skate in the air, and the puck. And, and I think those, those are challenging. The problem is the league is committed to if these are reviewable and offside is a black and white call, we're going to go as fine as we can get. So I think you have to open that a little bit to allow for some leniency. And, and I think Sean gets into a little bit around maybe how to accommodate that without necessarily letting things go. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand. And the thinking is sound in the sense that we don't want these taking five, seven, eight, ten minutes as they sometimes but rarely do. I mean, we are not looking at security camera footage of a bank robbery. It's an offside. It either is or isn't. Let's, let's move on in a certain amount of time. And the other difficult part is it seems as though there isn't a consistent time to have coaches decide, yes, I'm going to review. I think from the time the puck goes in, the clock starts, you got 30 seconds. If you're, if you're going to review, great. If not, we're moving on. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's no official 
designation in the rule book that sets a time for a coach to challenge. And we've seen some who have negotiated their way into some additional duration, stalling <laughs> as their video coach is reviewing the play. I think that probably would be the easiest fix. I think you need a shot clock for the challenge, whether you like you said, as soon as the puck goes in, 24 seconds starts ticking down. And uh, when the buzzer goes, the coach has either challenged or not. And we move on because drawing it out isn't helping anyone. And, and maybe you know, it, it, it rules out some of those ones that aren't as obvious. So now the coaches are only challenging the ones that are clear cut because they've only got a short time to figure that out. Right. The other thing that Sean mentions in his piece on The Athletic, and it's, it's worth checking out, is only reviews that lead directly to a goal. And this gets complicated because this thing has got to read like a legal document. There's a lot of variables, change of possession. What is possession? We deal with that with delayed penalties now. So I'm not sure how you how you address this one. No, this is the hard one, but it, it makes sense to people until you start applying the rules or writing the rules. Like you said, you get buried in legalese. Folks have suggested, well, we need a timer. You know, do we need the 30 seconds or 10 seconds after the the zone entry? But now we'll be checking the time to see, you know, was the goal scored at 9.59 after the zone entry or how quickly did they score? And, and now we're checking a time and an offside. So that gets complicated. So I don't think the time works. I think change in possession is a no brainer to me. If the puck changes possession and not just not contact, not deflection, but the defending team actually takes possession and control of the puck, then that negates the ability to challenge an offside. I think that makes sense. Perhaps they don't clear the zone and a goal is scored, but they had a chance to. So that I, I'm on board with 100%. Let's do that one today. Change of possession negates the ability to challenge. But the leading directly, you, you get into muddy waters of how much time do you have or what do you consider direct? Is it that the puck is shot within a certain amount of time? Is it that once the puck is moved below the goal line? Is it a certain number of passes? It's really hard to say how things directly contribute. So I'll, I'll leave Sean and the athletics legal team to try to figure out how to work that one. But the change of possession, though, sign me up for that one, Todd. I think you summarized it nicely in something that we can understand with just about every game and every edition of the podcast. It all makes sense until you apply the rules. We're done! Good job! You're good, my book. Good stuff, man. Way to work. Yeah, we're good, man. Too long. Let's go sit for a couple. Get in the box. It's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Read more at scoutingtherefs.com. Follow Scouting the Refs on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Scouting the Refs. Email the show at heyref at scoutingtherefs.com. Subscribe, share, and keep those sticks down. Okay. That's, uh, nicely done. That's good work.